Hello and welcome to the Floodlit Dreams podcast and today we're chatting to Tony Adams, of course the former Arsenal and England captain and Floodlit Dreams founder, journalist Ian Ridley. Ian and Tony worked together on Tony's two autobiographies, Addicted and Sober, so a lot to talk about to you two. Um, first of all then, Tony, how have you been coping in the last year with lockdowns and pandemics? Yeah, hi, Sim. Thanks for this. Yeah, really uh, looking forward to our chat. Um, pandemic, we're a year to the day, uh, recording this on the day we went into lockdown. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, for me, a lot of gifts of uh, of lockdown. And my, in, in particular, I've never been so intimate with my children, to be honest with you, um, especially my 26-year-old and my 29-year-old that have come home and, uh, you know, we've uh, we shared some magical moments that we wouldn't have got. You know, they get big, don't they, kids? And they go off and into the to the big world, and uh, and you kind of maybe see them for Christmas and stuff. But actually, having them at home, it's been, and it's diluted my other three. To be honest with you, I've got three younger ones, um, and uh, they have been, you know, absolute joy. We've we've had a lot of fun. Um, but obviously, it's uh, it's getting to the stage now where I'm, cl- I'm pleased they're back to school and uh, and got a little bit of Tony time. But I love walking. I'm very blessed that, that I've got a, a bit of space here in in the Cotswolds, and uh, I can. I've always loved walking. It's been part of my therapy. So uh, there's been a lot to actually um, to enjoy. I, I like the way that it's slowed down. Um, I've slowed down as well. I'm not running around so, so much. But I know, I think I'm maybe in the minority because a lot of people are in a lot of pain out there and uh, uh, maybe we'll get to that a bit later on. But personally, there's been lots of uh, um, gifts of lockdown. Yeah, I think I feel the same. You know, like you, I only live up the road from you in the Cotswolds and I felt, I must admit, I felt ever so blessed and I've spent a lot of time on the allotment. So if you want to come and do some digging, (laughs) you're more than welcome. Have you and Poppy been doing any homeschooling? What sort of teacher are you? I've left that to Poppy. (laughs) Listen, after 20... She's got the right right maiden name, hasn't she? There you go. Um, But uh, 12 years, well, pretty much 29 years of suppressing my thoughts and feelings, when they've kind of come back to me, I'm still quite an immature human being. And (laughs) I do struggle with patience and tolerance and and, uh, it's not my forte. So I do tend to walk away and go for walks and leave them to it. And yeah, I'm very grateful that I've got a a partner that's uh, extremely patient and tolerant and educated and can point and steer them in in the in the uh, in the right direction so that that's uh, you know i've kept out of the homeschool in front and other than kind of going actually let's go outside for a for a kickabout now you know what i mean or i'll throw some uh, cricket down we've got a little bit of a cricket net up and uh, i said come on let's have a or have a bowl at you and stuff so apart from that it's been a um it's been left to my partner. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, talking to both you, yourself, Tony, and to Ian as well. Um, obviously, you both are sober, you know, many, many years now. But it has been hard, hasn't it, for people who have turned to drink and have found that difficult during lockdown? I think uh, um, I think a lot of people have, you know. Um, we might go on to it later on, but... Um, I've definitely had a lot of phone calls from people um, 
in a lot of pain, a lot of dark thoughts out there as well. You know, obviously there's the bereavement. A lot of people have lost uh, loved ones in this uh, pandemic, but also there's a lot of dark thoughts out there and suicide rates are still going through the roof. You know, it really is. And, uh, you know, I think most people, most addicts are um, numbing their way through lockdown. <laughs> They've kind of, the, 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 um, the uh, use of alcohol is, 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 is gone through the roof and uh, uh, gambling and all these uh, kind of other escapes, as it were, have, uh, have uh, doubled their profits, I think, in, in this period. A lot of people are, are not kind of reaching out for help. A lot, of, lot to do with you're actually living on top of your partner and you might be a bit scared if you're a child of, a, of an alcoholic or a you know, or a partner of, uh, it's incredibly difficult to to get, you know, in another room and make the phone call, you know, when your partner's in domestic abuse, we've found that that's the one that's really gone through the roof um, uh, in the pandemic, you know, where people are on top of each other. And, uh, I don't, you know, me and my wife have got a, a fantastic relationship, but there's been times where you know we've had the odd argument, and I've had to go for a walk and get out. Of the, you know, when you're on, I can't live with myself, never mind someone else. I have a little difficulty in that. So, I think a lot of people have had a, a, a tough time, and lots of anxieties and lots of fears have come up for them in this period. I want to return to that a little bit later on, if that's all right with you, because I think it'd be interesting to talk to you a little bit more about that. I just want to explain to people as well why we're talking to you alongside Ian Ridley, the founder of Floodlit, Floodlit Dreams, because you two go back a long way. Ian, how did you first of all meet you two? Well, I'd, I'd known Tony uh, only professionally as captain of Arsenal, and um, I was a a journalist, a football writer, um, for uh, during the 90s, um, really at uh, the Independent um, and the Observer, then the Observer. Um, and my impressions of Tony were really, you know, like most people's impressions of Tony, that he was this sort of big, boorish man's man type of captain. I remember coming back from an Arsenal away game where they'd won one nil in Orcs Air and he was on the plane and he took the microphone and I think he'd had a couple of drinks and was having a go at the press at the back of the plane. And, you know, that was Tony's kind of macho culture at that time. And then when I properly met Tony, it, it, you know, and it's documented in the book, was was um, was at an AA meeting, second AA meeting. You know, I'd known Paul Merson. We lived near each other in St Albans and Paul had, and I had got friendly through going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And then Tony came. Tony acknowledged he had a problem, he came, and then we became pals after that, really, and went to meetings together. And then 18 months, no, less than that, about a year later, Tony decided he wanted to, I'll let him tell that, but he wanted to tell his story and, and said to me, would you like to tell it? And Tony, why did, you, why, did you pick, why did you pick Ian? And, and did you have any qualms about telling your story? Uh, well, the process of that, and I think it was in Paul's kitchen, Ian, the first time that was I it? met you. I think it was in, in Paul's kitchen, and uh, um, it no, may be the case no. where I met you in the meeting, but I also, yeah. you know, our friendship gathered because you yeah. were friends with Paul. And I, 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 I kind of remember that you were, um, when I asked you to write the book, you were standing in his kitchen. I've just got this, oh. kind, of, this kind of memory. Um, the, the book came about after I was 18 months clean and sober 
um, and going through, we've got the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and step four is a, a, a fearless and a moral inventory. And um, when you release all that through five, step five, it's a kind of, kind of we, we uncover, discover, and then we get rid of it in step five. All the, although, you know, you're only sick as your secrets, all that stuff. I needed to get it up and get it out so it didn't have kind of can haunt me uh, anymore, you know, that kind of sets you free. And what I found is that it didn't set me free. And why it didn't set me free is because most of my my baggage, as it were, was in the public domain. And I felt like I had to do a step four and five in the public domain. And the only way that I thought to get it out there was through an autobiography, you know, to, to do my side, of, keep my side of the street clean, to get it all out. So, so the press, the press that I had to go out on the plane, you know, that was just full of ego and fear and arrogance, really, when I was drinking and having a go at that, because, I was doing a lot of bad stuff, so they, so they reported the bad stuff, you know, so it's evident that they were going to be, you know, and I, I kind of got worse because I was kind of blaming them for that, and then they were writing bad stuff, more more bad stuff. Anyway, so I, I got in, and I, I was in a position where I kind of needed a clear house, um, and a, a series of coincidences happened, what well, I call them God coincidences today, um, whereby I met Ian, uh, I also met a guy called Eddie Bell, who was in the, uh, um, who used to sit in our West Upper, who was uh, chairman of Harper Collins at the time, big Arsenal fan. He said to me, if any time you want to do the book, um, you know, uh, love to publish it for you. And Ian said to me, if any time you wanted to do the book, I'd love to write it for you. And Ian pretty much knows me better than me, you know, so he knows we're good with other people's problems at times, you know, and less good with our own. <laughs> Ian is absolutely kind of nails me because he's an addict and he understands and he's out there with the public domain and he was part of the, the media and the same kind of world from a journalistic but sports industry, you know, he, he knew about this stuff and he knew what made me tick and he saw my change and he saw how I was sharing in meetings and it was so kind of obvious that I needed him to take part of this and I think Ian can pick it up from here because the process you tell him about the process Ian I think yeah. going forward I was um, wondering about how you went about writing the book Ian and working together on it and also as a journalist you must have been aware that you were holding some precious information from somebody who you cared about and were you shocked at how much Tony was able to tell you and was willing to tell you how did you you know handle with care yes I mean I get very goosebumpy um when Tony speaks like that and, and recalling that passage of my life and, and and my career really um it was a very very special time um gosh I don't even know where to start with it all it was just it was just a year and a, 18 months of of absolute intense um, professional and personal excitement really um, we'd work in the afternoons after Tony had done training often at Sopwell House um, near St Albans where Arsenal were based at that time we'd do two or three hours that's all we could do because not even three two usually because it was so intense and I'd go away and I'd transcribe the tapes because I didn't trust them with anyone else they were, I couldn't let anyone transcribe these 
there was the revelations were astonishing. And I've often thought that maybe you wouldn't be able to do this in the modern era because so much would be on social media. People would spot Tony and this kind of thing and you wouldn't be able to keep it under apps. But we did that pretty much for a year. I can remember um, we went to the south of France for a week. Tony was badly injured, had a bad ankle um, and lost the game. Blackburn said, that's it. I need to get myself fit. Arsene Wenger sent him to the south of France and I went with him for a week and we worked on the book. And I, I do remember amazingly, I think it was the last night we were there. We'd done an awful lot of work. It was in the January and we'd done an awful lot of work on the book. And we went to this restaurant in Antibes and sat in a corner of the restaurant was Marco Van Basten having dinner. And to Mark, Marco Van Basten had tormented Tony at Euro 88. Here we were eight years later. This was ahead of, no, 10 years later nearly. This was just ahead of the 98 World Cup in France. And as we were leaving, Tony said, I'm just going to go over and say hello to him. And Tony went over and I, I left them to it. And I went outside and he came outside and I said, how was that? And he said, I've got to play again. I've got to play again. He said, uh, Marco has just regretted not playing um, and that his career ended so early. I've got to get back. I've got to get back. And, um, and I think it got a renewed physical and spiritual purpose that from that that week we finished the book at the end of that Arsenal did the double that that year at the in 97 98 and it was just it was just such a we would meet and I you're right I had all this stuff I remember oh I could go on forever but I won't <laughs> I, we, I had all this material and in those days it was on a floppy disk and towards the end uh, of the book I needed to have the draft in I went to um, I went to the Canary Islands with my then wife before Vicky um, to finish the book and I came back and I finished it and it was all on this floppy disk and I kept it on my inside pocket and I'm thinking what I own here nobody has read nobody has heard these stories this is worth millions of pounds to Harper Collins this little disk is worth millions of pounds to Harper Collins and uh yeah, that's how I remember. I've got two wonderful stories that I'll tell later, if I may, about once the book was published. Well, I remember, obviously, when the book was published, because I was working at Five Live on the afternoon show then, and I remember sitting interviewing you, Tony, about the book. And I can remember almost, you know, feeling through the glass, the producers and the editors going, you know, because you were so open and you were so honest. And that interview really stayed with me. It's one of the interviews that has really stayed with me, you know, as a, you know, as an interviewer on, on the BBC. How hard was it for you to really be that open and that honest? Or was it just a no-brainer for you at that point? You wanted, you wanted to tell everybody everything. <laughs> Sybil, thank you, Sybil. But it wasn't as... Uh, as uh, <laughs> I kept a lot back for my personal step four. <laughs> it was quite... It was honest enough. And I think at the time... The, the public weren't used to that level of honesty. And uh, because I had nothing to fear anymore, because I wasn't living a lie, I just told my truth and it felt so, so clean and so honest and so open. And people, you know, took it how they took it. I think it was a, a bit of a trailblazer. Um, 
I wanted to do it through um, the news of the world. Um, I thought that the Sunday morning was an important time for the addict, hungover, you know, sleeping on the newspaper sometimes over your head. Maybe I could get to as many people as I as I possibly could. I didn't want the money. I got a quarter of a million for that and started the sporting chance up uh, for the proceeds of Addicted. Um, I give you, it worked out after tax about 170 grand. And uh, I gave that and started the sporting chance, which has you know, helped a over thousands and thousands of sports people since 2000 when it opened up. So Addicted was meant to be. Uh, it meant to be. I felt like I was saying, you know, it was my truth. Um, it was powerful enough. My reaction, there's a few things that, that women kind of say there's not enough kind of emotions in it. <laughs> there's too much football in it. I've been criticised for that at times. But the, the great thing, and, and Ian picked this up, because um, I had a lot of blackouts during my drinking and stuff. You know, I, I, what are the genius thing in all this is we had the fixture list that we could go back to and actually trace the steps and kind of, Plotted back. Actually, Tone, you wasn't there. That didn't happen. <laughs> you know, that didn't happen there. When you went to Windsor Races, you said you went a week before. You didn't because the Wimbledon game was on the Monday and you must have been drunk this weekend. And I went, oh, okay, yeah, I must have done that. But um, yeah, it was, South of France was beautiful. It was beautiful. And Ian was, you know, was the right man. And if I may just give you one kind of thing before you ask me another question, but I knew Ian was the right man, Few, only because it was just meant to be, and I love him, and he's brilliant, and he's great at his job, and he knows this illness better than anyone. Um, but also, we had a, I had a fitness coach, um, Tibbis Daru. He's passed away now, Tibbis. And um, he's macho, he's massive, you know, big French legend. You know, he used to train Jimmy Connors in the 70s, you know, tennis coach, and he's full of, big character big French character he was in the industry and Arsene had got him involved and he was teaching me and over dinner the same dinner that Ian was talking about Marco Van Basten he was there and every time Ian would speak he cut across him and, and shut Ian down and Ian quite simply said I don't know what he said but he just basically said do not ever do that again show me the respect and this Big man just went zoomp, absolutely shut up. And I've never seen the power, the power of self-esteem, self-worth, of dignity, of humility, you know, to actually say, hold on a minute, you know, I might not have played for England, but I, I write a good book and I know about this stuff and it's going to be, you know, the power of the pen, you know, the power of the word, you know, was much bigger than the power of this, this character. So that I knew I was in the right hands. <laughs> well, yes, I, I've also been on the uh, receiving end of Ian uh, telling me to shut up. <laughs> yes, many times, but it's probably in a more gentle way. <laughs> called being arsey these days, I think. Yes, yes, Sib, don't be so arsey, yeah. Um, what do you remember most, Ian, about talking and well, learning from Tony and discovering? Uh, well, I, I was always blown away by the, the detail. I always used to say to him, I always talk about what's called the jukebox moment. And for any writer, I always say, um, this is the jukebox moment. When we started out, 
the, the sentences at the beginning of Addicted are short and sharp because that's how Tony spoke. And as the book developed, he became much more expansive, much more sober, much more in touch with his feelings. And the book developed as a, a result and blossomed and the sentences got a bit longer. So that's how it was written like that. But in the beginning, I said, I want to start the book with the day you stopped drinking and why you particularly that day were in so much pain that you felt the need to stop. And he took me through it and he was in a pub in um, Horn Church in Essex. And, and he said, there was this song, I put something on the jukebox and I said, what was the song? He said, I can't remember. And I said, well, by the time this process is over, I want to know because books survive on detail. That's how they thrive is on detail that you can't get in newspapers at that time. So many good pieces these days where you do get the detail, but not at that time. And, um, about six weeks later, he phoned me up one night and said, um, as he did with the title, actually, Tony, we didn't have a title for it. It was going to be, I think the working title was going to be To Any Lengths, which is a, mm. a phrase in AA. And he phoned me up late one night and said, it's going to be called Addicted. Addicted. I was addicted to football. I was addicted to alcohol. And it was perfect. It was just perfect. It almost became a brand name. And, uh, and he also said, um, Black Coffee in Bed by Squeeze. That's what was playing. And that's kind of, and then people, when they read that, they're going to go, go and look it up and maybe play it or something, you know, because it triggers a memory. So that was the kind of detail I wanted. I just remember him being incredibly honest about time in prison, about driving his car through a, a wall, you know, the, and football as well, you know, with teammates and everything, but being respectful as well. The, the whole process was just, I do remember four weeks before publication, getting a phone call from David Dean, who was then the vice chairman of Arsenal. And uh, David said to me, um, I've been sent a copy of this manuscript, which and it was due for printing quite soon. And he said, well, we can't have this. We can't allow this to be published. And Tony had been adamant that the FA weren't gonna see it and Arsenal weren't gonna see it. And David said, um, well, we'll, we'll, you know, we can't have Arsenal's name dragged through the mud like this. And I said, well, I don't think it's being dragged through the mud. I think Tony's just being honest. He said, well, we're going to have to take an injunction out. And I said, David, you can do that. But if it looks like Arsenal are gagging the captain of the club and of England, then I don't think the club will emerge very well. And this stuff's likely to get out anyway, because Tony's the kind of personality that will not be silenced. Anyway, I didn't hear any more until about a month or two weeks after the book came out there was this big launch at Highbury and there was a press conference and I'm stood at the back of the press conference and David Dean comes up to me at the back of the press conference and said just want to congratulate you on this book it's magnificent it's helping a lot of people he said and and it's flying off the shelves in the club shop <laughs> that was David <laughs> You know, when I think back to that time, Tony, 1998, and obviously I was on Five Live at the time and it was all Arsenal and then Euro 96, you know, that sunny day against Scotland and the, mm. the terrible sadness on a silent train coming back from Wembley after the semi-final and everything. It mm. seems a hell of a long time ago to me. Mm. It seems like another lifetime. Does that, is that how it feels to you now or not? 
the past was it in chapter four? Yes, it was the, the past great. Is a foreign country. That's exactly is right. It, the is great. That what we started with you, you, yeah. you Jay, not J. P. Hartley. He's the fisherman, isn't he? But, yeah, it is J. Um, that's not J. R. Hartley. Who was it? L. P. Is it L. P. Hartley? L. P. Hartley. Is a foreign country. I used to live there once. Exactly, and it kind of summed up the 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 book and the change in me. And uh, yeah, they were special days, you know, and. You know, white knuckled it through the tournament of '96, and then you know we're talking about the book going forward in '98. I actually had to put the, the we we did an extra chapter of the book um, for, for the World Cup, but I, I I actually had to put it down uh, because it was bringing too much inside of me, and I found finding that I was so emotionally distressed with it all that I put it down and played the tournament. Uh, 98 before we could actually get it up again and uh, and get it out the book you know and do the rest because it was just bringing up too much stuff uh and I wasn't able to do my job and stuff yeah so that was uh, and you, you are about the the detail in and I remember it you know vividly I was in the car and I was driving out the the end of my road and it just popped into my head addicted it just absolutely you know one of those god-given kind of moments again you know and yeah it was black coffee in bed and i couldn't get it out of my head <laughs> just going going around and round in my head you know absolutely ruminating on it you know i was thinking as well when i introduced you i i fell into that trap of saying we're talking to tony adams former arsenal and england captain what where is football in your life now because it's a long time since you played football, isn't it? And how do you feel about being defined quite often, like I did today, as a footballer? <laughs> you know, I fell into that trap. Um, you know, it's given me everything. You know, I first kicked the ball when I was six years old. I was in Hackney Marches watching my dad um, play and uh, just fell in love with it. And, and we're talking on this call today because I had that career, Let, yeah. you know, let's get it out there first and foremost, but it doesn't define me, you know, I'm more than that, you know, when I first went into therapy, to my therapist that I still see today, you know, I said, look, I know how to get shit faced and I know how to play football, but I don't know who I am, who I am, you know, and it's, it's kind of resonated and stayed with me for, for the time. And I still get teary now, kind of taking me back to that moment. It's so powerful that I did, I, who was I? Who was I as a person? You know, who am I today? You know, and I, I kicked I retired near on, what's it now? 19 years ago. <laughs> you know, it's 19 years ago and uh, that I actually kicked a ball around. And that was clean. And, and, and I fell into the category of choosing when I retired. I know a lot of people get stuck uh, at the end of their careers, any job really, when you're retiring from a job and calling it a day and you can't do it anymore, it's extremely painful, you know, but definitely I, I, I've only played 13 games in my last year and I was, 
I was a kind of character. I didn't do the bench. You know, I wasn't a sub player. That wasn't me. That wasn't, you know, I hadn't done that for my whole career. And I wasn't in, in, intending to, to do that in the future. So I, I was more than the football at that stage. I had six years of recovery, six years of building my self-esteem away from the football pitch, you know, as a man, as a human being in relationships, you know, I've, I've got other tools that I can use now, you know, I've noticed in the last few years, but I was prepared and emotionally, which is important, emotionally and mentally, I was prepared to let football go. It wasn't the be end of end, everything, you know, the, the way that I felt pre getting clean and sober. When I was clean and sober, before that, when I was using and stuff, you know, it felt like everything. It felt like absolutely everything. What about um, in this pandemic, in the last year, a lot of people have lost their jobs. And many people listening might have lost who they were, you know, by losing, you know, we're, we're so often defined by what we do. You know, you meet people, don't they? And say, oh, what are you doing now, Sybil? What are you and I say, digging the allotment. <laughs> we are very defined, aren't we, by our jobs. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that. If somebody's listening and they've been through a really bad time and maybe lost their job and lost their place in the world, what's your sort of advice on that? Because you've been there, you know. I tend not to give advice, but I tend to share my experiences. Yes. My yeah. experience has been uh, um, one where... Um, you know, when I got my self-esteem for what I did and not who I was, then I think you're always setting yourself up for a disappointment, you know, because that sometime that might, for whatever reason, emotionally, mental, physically, you might have sold the business, lost the business, you know, whatever life kind of throws at you and life does throw things at you. I think you're setting yourself up to, to fail. You know, when you're getting your self-esteem and your self-worth from within, from people that love you around you, you know, from proper sources. We, we stay in the rooms about uh, sticking with the winners and, and win with the stickers. My mum used to call it, um, show me your friends and I'll show you you. You know, when you've got people that love you and, and are, are, are kind of wanting you, you know, to be the best person you can be. Um, I think all those things that you can handle all those things fears and insecurities, the loss of jobs, the ill health, you know, the big four stuff, you know, the money, the work, health, relationships, you know, these things, when we're, when we're kind of working on those a day at a time, I think it's, it's easier to look to the, for me, it's a, one door closes, you know, another door opens. It really is. It's so many opens and, and you follow your path. And, you know, as long as you're okay with yourself, that's what my experience has been. Um, then it, it does kind of um, unfold the way it, it's supposed to, I suppose. And Ian, when you hear the 55-year-old or whatever you are now, Tony, sorry, I can't remember how old you are. Um, how does this man compare with the man you first met? Um, well, it's the same man. It's the same person. It has the same innate compassion and kindness. It's just that he was having trouble accessing it at that time. Um, and I think that is the... That is the great um, thief that is addiction. It robs people of their innate uh, qualities, uh, masks them, steals them. 
And once people do get into a recovery and can go through that, it's painful, it's hard to stop drinking, to stop using, to stop damaging behaviours. Once you can get through that initial period of withdrawal from that and you start to, to find out who you are, then you kind of come out of the closet, I think. And that's what Tony did, really. He came out of the closet as a very decent and good man, a human being. And, it, you know, it's been that's why we're still friends all this time on. You know, sometimes, if I'm honest, you write a book with someone and, and you, you know, you have a relationship with them for a year or two years. Most of the people I write books with because I connect with them so much. And that's the reason I've taken on their books. Tony is the, the biggest example of that. We're still friends after all these years. And I think because we've both been, um, I've very nearly said the word journey there. I promise I won't, I promise myself I won't use the word journey. But because we've been on the same kind of trajectory all these years, that was why he wanted to do sober to, to the lessons of those 20 years of, of his sobriety. And that's, you know, that's the book. And I think I'm very much aware that sober is not the sensation that addicted was because of timing and, and how, you know, the whole issue of addiction is much more accepted and known about these days. Um, but it is in many ways a wiser book and it is in many ways a more interesting book than addicted. Yeah, and it's funny in a way that um, you have had in a way, Tony, the luxury of finding out who you really are. And in, in some ways, in, for some people, that's what this pandemic has been. Some of us have had a bit more time to go, oh, yeah, I remember. I remember this is what I was like before I was chasing ambition and running around doing this, that and the other. And in a way, you've had that luxury, haven't you, to be able to, addiction has given you the luxury of finding out who you are. Well, I, I reflect on a daily basis through, through prayer and meditation. It's part of my programme. Uh, and there's a great phrase in AA, give time, time. And I think a lot of people have, before you stop, you have to slow down. And I think the pandemic has slowed a lot of people down. Um, and it did bring us beautifully onto Sobery. And, and I, I, I still think it, it's a bit of book, but I'll say that because it's full of, uh, I'm glad you said wisdom. I, I'm, I'm too humble to, <laughs> if I had humility, I'd only boast about it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I just loved how grown up it is, how wise it is. We cover a lot of these topics around reflection and, 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 and the great uh, wisdom that is in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12-step program. It's a beautiful, it's saved my life and it's given me a life. You know, addicted is all, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll. A lot of sickness in that book. And unfortunately, sex sells, <laughs> sickness sells. It doesn't sell to me. You know, it doesn't sell to me. When I, when I was in my sickness, I didn't like the light. I didn't like anybody that had their dignity, their self-respect. You know, I, I actually run the other way. I wanted everybody to be as sick as I was at that point. You know, but now I, I've kind of transformed in and the books are transformation. It's like a dark book and a light book. You know, it's full of, you know, great stuff in there. You know, I do prefer it. <laughs> Although Addicted sold more copies, you know, it was. A, I think you, you, you said it's like of its time, you know, Addicted was a... a, a different I think people didn't understand how people could be that honest in public there was a lot of fear from both sides you when know. you say you um meditate and pray 
Who do you pray to? Well, I've never got of my understanding. The, the, the important thing here, Sybil, is that it's not me. I had yeah. to get rid of my ego, you know, my arrogance. So I had to kind of put a person, you know, and my great power was just passed away a couple of weeks ago, actually. And we came out of a meeting one day and we looked up at the stars. It was a clear night in, in Sirencester, up at the tune, looking above the church we were. And he just went, look at all them stars. Someone else holding them up and it's not us. And it was just kind of beautiful. It's actually, you know, it's not me that's controlling everything. You know, I don't have to play God here, you know, which I was. My self-will was running right, you know. It was getting me into disaster after disaster, you know. And I don't, my best thinking got me drinking. Uh, I want to say here as well that um, getting sober isn't easy either, is it? Because you have talked about your anxiety and your depression and, Ian, you would agree, wouldn't you, that it it's a lifelong, um, yeah. I don't want I, to say battle, but it's a, a lifelong mission, isn't it, to... Yeah, it's um, it's a daily reprieve, is, yeah. is how, I, uh, how I would describe it. I mean, let no one underestimate how hard it is just to put down the bottle, mm. just to put down that crutch. Um, and there will be withdrawals, there will be pain, and you should do it with, with help and have people around you. Um, but it's doable. I mean, the withdrawals from a bender, you know, you can get through them in a week. After that, it becomes a question of coping with raw emotion and how you do that. And the best way I found of doing that was talking to like-minded people, finding them in, in AA. You just Google AA and you can find people, you know, you find meetings, you find people to talk to. Um, and once you start doing that and you find out about yourself, then, you know, alcohol is not in my life today. Um, I don't even think about it on a daily basis. For, and for somebody 33 years ago that the first waking thought was, how soon can I have my first drink? Um, that's, you know, that's a turnaround. But, um, you know, I went to Azerbaijan with, to, to, for a week with Tony to work on um, sober. I went to Granada in Spain for a week. We had the most wonderful weeks. We'd sit and drink tea and mineral water all afternoon. You know, we'd just wander around Baku or we'd wander around Granada. And it was just like being comfortable with the best Bessie you could ever have. And, uh, you know, and the book is a kind of reflection of that, really. There's some there's actually some very good football stuff in there, I, I must say, as well. Um, I think the stuff, the chapter on Arsene Wenger and the complex, nuanced relationship between Tony and is one of the best things we, we, we did and Tony did. But it kind of gets overlooked, as you say, in the, the sex and drugs and rock and roll. Um, need need short attention span these days. <laughs> Let's talk about the present now, because um, obviously, Tony, you talked about Sporting Chance, which you founded, I think, in 2000, something like that. Mm. And you've now got um, a new venture as well called 6MHS, which is about mental health and helping people. Um, that is something that uh, we've got an epidemic of almost. I mean, I have a daily conversations with people who are struggling, friends mm. of mine who are finding things difficult. Um, yeah. First of all, why do that? Because you could, couldn't, couldn't you now just 
enjoy life yourself and not and stop helping everybody else <laughs> but, but well that's what i've got to give it back you know got to give it away to keep it you know and uh it's a it's a daily reprieve and just said it's 24 hours it's not we don't get all the tools all this stuff and can, it's not linear you know we don't get all these tools and then say thanks for thanks for helping me i'm off now you know, I have to start again every day. And it's not painful for us today. You know, some people think, oh, it's, a, it's not a battle every single day. You know, there's so much peace in my life today, you know, and uh, it, it, that gets kind of overlooked. It's not like I'm, I'm rolling up my sleeves and, and it's actually the paradoxically, <laughs> paradoxically, it's different. It's actually about letting things go. Why am I doing this? Uh, yeah, I did 21, well, 21 years now, Sporting Chance, but last summer, um, Sorry, we should say Sporting Chance helps people in sport, basically. It's, it's a, a helping hand for sports people, isn't it? And you've moved away now to also add everybody else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To the wider, wider audience. Well, yeah, I felt a little bit handcuffed last summer. And uh, I'm, I'm helping all these sports people, which is brilliant. And I, and I love that. Um, but I'm getting a lot of people that are not sports people <laughs> getting in touch with me, friends, family, and I'm, I'm going, oh, I can't use my staff, you know, I can't use the, the charity staff because it's sports specific, uh, all the services that are doing some great work. So I thought, hold on a minute, I need to kind of replicate the services to the wider audience. So, yeah, I've gone into the business uh, area to start with. I thought they would be the ones that should take responsibility for their employees, get them off of the NHS, get them off of going to their GPs, because some of these businesses are making a lot of money. And, you know, it took me a long time to get into the PFA, the FA, the PCA, all these sports organisations, the, the Jockey Association. It took me 20 years to, to get these people on board, but they all do. They all take the services of the Sporting Chance Clinic now. You know, they all do. And now I've gone into the business world and say, look, guys, you know, and girls, um, you know, we, you need to rock up here. You know, your employees have got huge bereavement, having bad days, you know, and we're all about not going to crisis. It's all about not going to crisis. Don't, before your wife leaves you, before you lose your job, make the call. You've got to really believe in talking therapy as a thing that will get you better. And sometimes I've gone into these businesses and they just don't get it just don't get it right they want to tick boxes and have a little eap system and you know bit of this and bit of that and you know oh, they prefer very similar to football actually i've got to make this point back in the day if you're pretty much no good at football they want you out you know that used to be the the, the way that they did it the fa the pfa they're stepping up now they actually look after their employees you know, past and present, especially the PFA. But the organisations, if the employee's not so good, they're just trying to get them out. They won't work. And, and, and paradoxically, you know, if you helped your employee, they come back and they're so, in oh, thank you for the help, for getting me that therapist, thanks for getting me this, you know, really a lifesaver for me. I've got back in. And they're, they're, do, they're be double the employee they were before. Of course it is. Always difficult for people or can be difficult for people to ask for help. I mean, we've had all that publicity recently, haven't we? With the interview with um, Harry and Meghan and, and she was talking about asking for help and not getting help. You know, actually making that move to say, I need help is very 
hard for people, it's isn't it? Simple. You have to do it in safe places, confidential. We're an external organisation. And my, my therapist, we're not going to run back to the boss. You know, I don't suggest you do it in, in, the, in the public domain. If I've got a mental health issue, you know, you might want to take it. There was a very... CEO woman came to me, said, uh, Tone, you know, I'm having panic attacks. Take them away from me. Take them away. I can't. You don't get me wrong. I've got partners. I'm the CEO of this big company. We're turning over so many millions, billions. Actually, take them away from me. <laughs> Why don't you go and talk to someone? You know, just go and have someone. She's had therapy for a couple of years now she's gone back into the business her partners don't know it's completely confidential private and confidential safe place to share they've got to know that when they're reaching out they've got to know that you know and i always did it at the start of my journey it's say civil i'm so passionate about this and yeah about um you know I, 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 but it, <laughs> I just got to say you know it saved my life you know when I, my mother-in-law you know she's she's passed away now she slipped to, when I, i'd lost the wife I, she was in rehab the kids had gone i didn't want to live anymore you know i was at the end and she put a number in my pocket and said why don't you give him a I'm getting teary now why don't you give him a call and go and go and talk to someone and i reached out to the guy and uh, and i still see him today 25 years later and he saved my life you know talking before i get before i start crying no, i think uh, it, i think it is so important to hear you talk like that because you know i've talked a lot to, uh, to friends during the pandemic you know and, and thankfully people have said oh can I have a chat and all the rest it is very very hard for people to ask for help isn't it and i think, I think you know we all we've all been there we have yeah. all been there ian you well I, I think two big things are going to be you know when you're in a crisis particularly as an addict you tend to cope uh, a lot of the time people find ways of coping it's when it stops and you're in the aftermath that the reality and the feelings come and hit you and you think oh my god how did you know how did i survive that I, and it's the same people the estimates are that there will be 6 million people affected by bereavement in the past year that's one tenth of the population. So we are going to have over the next couple of years, people dealing with grief. And I, as you know, I've been through two years of grief and I can tell you that's a lot of people going to be in a lot of pain over the next two years. And also the issue of addiction and mental health is going to be huge. The addiction of, of abuse, physical and emotional abuse is going to be huge. So we need to be prepared. We need to get ourselves ready over the next two years. And we need a lot more people like Tony Adams willing to put themselves, you know, when, as he says, when you get sober, you have to pass this on. When, you know, when you do achieve some degree of mental health, you have to pass this on. That's the deal here. You have been given a gift and it's, your, it's not yours to keep. It's yours to share. So that's we need a lot more people like Tony Adams taking this message out there. And do you think, Tony, you'll always feel like that? I'm thinking about your your future. Do you think you'll always feel this way that it is something you have to share? And so, so far, so good, Sybil. <laughs> <laughs> 25 not out 
Listen, it, it's about giving that egg. It's being right size. You know, I'm no better, no worse than any other human being, you know. And, you know, we have to, um, I'm repeating stuff here, but I think it's a, a necessity for my part of my growth and part of my journey that I do give it away. And you have to give it away to keep it. It's a nice thing to say, but what does that look like? It looks like me going out into the mental health arena and sharing my stories, my experiences. You know, that's what it means for me. And yes, will I be doing it to the day I die? Yes. You know, it's the most important thing in my life that, uh, that I stay clean. And, and I've got a, an opportunity, an opportunity. God, God, call it what you want. It's given me an opportunity to pass this stuff on. I've got a responsibility when anybody reaches out and wants my help that I'm there to pass it on. You know, that's what I do. And I've got a circuit breaker here as well. You know, I don't give it to my kids. Like I don't have to, you know, subject them to my, to my stuff. You know, you know, my three younger ones never saw me drinking use, and it, and it's it's gone far far worse than that because I can be emotionally completely unwell without even putting a substance inside of me. You know, I can be off my trolley and not good to be around. You know, manipulative. You know, kind of all these kind of character defects that I've that, that I've come to light through my four and five but done these two books if i don't do this sybil i'll use again and if i use again i'll die you know that's where i was at 29 you know i know that if i do if i continue not to give it away then i will use again and if i do use again i'll die well tony i must say it's been great to talk to you again really, <laughs> really honestly amazing and ian as always great to talk to you so thank you very much for being here on the flood lit dreams podcast thank you very much thank you sybil god bless you god bless you